Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Okay, you know, it's April... It's springtime, and we're, of course, excited about the springtime in Wisconsin, because that means that the snow monster is finally on its way out. Yay! <laughs> but, Wendy, what else does that mean? Well, it means that it's time for not just spring training, but opening day for baseball. That's right, opening day. And did I ever tell you when I was six years old, I really wanted to be a Milwaukee Brewer? No, you never told me that. I really wanted to be a Milwaukee Brewer, because they're in the, going to the World Series and everything, and... Uh, they were my favorite team. So I like them too. I went to George Webb and got the free cheeseburger when they got their, um, was it 13 games in a row? Yeah. If they, if they kick off and they win 13 games in a row, then George yeah. Webb, you get a free burger. And so I got one so too. That was like the summer. I waited in line and it was awesome. The so. summer 87. <laughs> okay. Yep. But enough about us. We could. But wait, we, Mike, how does we, sports ball relate to paranormal? It's not a topic that we talk about very often. Well, first, anyone that's seen Major League knows that superstitions (laughs) have a huge place in baseball. So we're excited to bring on baseball folklorist Dan Gordon, who we're going to grill him today about haunted baseball stories. And joining us from East Providence, Rhode Island, is Dan Gordon. Dan, how are you doing today? Welcome. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's a little warmer, so we're we're happy here. Um, okay, so East Providence, Rhode Island. What's the team that you root for? Uh, the Red Sox. Uh, but I, you know, I always kind of had a little something in my heart for the Milwaukee Brewers. I you know grew up. The Sox played them a lot when I was little. I loved uh, a few players like Ben Ogilvy and a few guys I I watched growing up. Um, uh, Robin Yount and oh yeah, yeah, that sweet mustache. <laughs> So okay, so did you grow up in Rhode Island or did you grow up in the East Coast? I did. Well, the suburb in Seekonk, Massachusetts. So yeah, suburb. It was kind of a suburb of Rhode Island, of Providence. All right. So there's two things here that when people talk about obsessions or you know how we are fans of things, that usually they don't connect that often. So when we talk about uh, how'd you get into baseball and how'd you get into weird stuff, I think that'd be a good place to start the conversation. How, what what inspired you uh, to get there and eventually become an author? <laughs> well, you mentioned the summer of 87, and that summer, I that year, I got a, a Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, which was a, a grant to uh, study baseball culture around the world. Um, I had been, you know, as, as I mentioned, a diehard Red Sox fan, and I was looking to travel and heard about this fellowship and was kind of uh, wondering how, how I could you know, find some, you know, way to travel around the world and get this grant in particular. And uh, a professor, anthropology professor that I had was a former minor league player himself. And, and he, he just thought amusing about it during a meeting. And I just thought, you know, my God, this, this would be heaven to travel around the world. And anyway, I got, got the grant and I went to Japan uh, for five months, um, going to ballparks just about every night. Um, interviewing players, interviewing fans, um, then through Latin America, Dominican Republic, uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, um, spent 14 months just um, 
you know, totally immersed in baseball. And that's when I started writing, um, originally journaling and writing letters and then some friends and author friends said, you should, you should try to put together a book. And, um, I just started writing articles and stuff. And, and eventually I, I started getting interested in the paranormal as well. Um, I always had been, you know, fascinated with, with stories, kind of more, um, just hearing different, you know, folklore, you know, I, I spent, um, you know, go to the Cape Cod every summer and started, you know, would always be fascinated by the old houses and some of the stories I heard around the Cape. And then, so I ended up writing a book first on Cape Cod ghost stories. And then it kind of dawned on me that I could perhaps see what, what there was in, in baseball because of all the uh, folklore there. Well, one thing I'm interested in, is if you've got to spend 14 months bumming around the baseball <laughs> all over the world, which, I mean, that sounds like a really fun trip. You get to do that. What what do you think was the most surprising thing on that trip where you're like, when you went to Japan or you went to Central America and you're like, I never, like, you, you know, with the way they either treated baseball or something with the sport, uh, what the biggest difference and maybe something that either surprised or shocked you the most of the most different from our, you know, usual American baseball culture? That's a great question. I Actually, the commonality is what kind of fascinated me the most, uh, just the fact that, that you could go, you know, to some small, you know, town in Japan to a ballpark and people would be, you know, have dragged the whole family would be there and they'd be totally, you know, just enjoying the ballpark and you, you know, kind of like, like watching a campfire, like chatting, you know, just totally immersed in it. But you know, as far as differences, um, just some of the, the ritual, like in Japan, um, the fact high school baseball is the mo- probably bigger than professional baseball in terms high school baseball is like their March madness here. They, they have like a, a huge tournament the whole country uh, stops to, to watch it. And, and, and just um, the, the fact that people, the players there, um, you know, the players all have shaved their head and, and just kind of a fascination with purity and baseball. There is more like a martial art and that it's more, um, it it you know kind of more of a kind of a spiritual uh, re- religion and experience um and kind of a you know a declaration of you know of values kind of um if that makes sense uh it kind of has it, it it's like they they you know pe- players you know it you know the players that are most admired are, are the players that totally you know sacrifice themselves and you know to the point of, of injury and and beyond um so ah well that's interesting when you, when you think about it like purity or martial art because a lot of times when i think about baseball players i think about that when you think about basketball players or football players like a lot of them are pure specimens of like awesome physicality while baseball, you could be somebody like Babe Ruth, who is a pure, a different kind of physicality specimen, you know. And um, for them to, I think when you said like shave their head and, and treat it, uh, it with ritual and purity as a martial art, I think that's an interesting approach that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, I mean, players actually bow to the field. They still do that to this day. I mean, even professional players, a lot of them. And you'll see some of the major league players, you kind of notice subtly when they come out, like from the bullpen or something, Japanese uh, imports, that they'll 
they'll still like uh, bow or tip their cap to the to the ball field. You know, kind of like the ball field is their dojo, like the karate dojo. It's it's their place, and you can't uh, you have to respect it. And like I mean, I've heard you know seen you know like players like Hideki Matsui of the Yankees who said who were totally shocked that like American players would spit on the field or chew gum or spit or you know. Or whatever, you know, because you know that that's kind of to- disrespecting the field. I mean, they would never walk, step on the emblem, you know, for the professional teams. You know, it's just like, you know, it's kind of it's it's an art form, you know, as well as a uh, as a game. That makes me laugh. That was the first thing I could think of was the tobacco chewing. You know, <laughs> me too. He's <laughs> like, because yeah. I remember when I was a kid. Now you don't see that much tobacco chewing anymore. And not that we should sit in here and talk about tobacco chewing for. But you don't see that much chaw in baseball anymore, like we did when we were kids. Yeah. Like even we go back to the 1982 Brewers, which is probably the last time I really enjoyed baseball. Because once they switched to the National League, I was done. <laughs> But like Harvey Keene, the manager, he would just sit there and you'd see half of his face like a half like a half chipmunk. You know what I'm talking about. And just just this old gross across the thing. And to, to think that these players come through and they'd be like, what are you doing? Like, this is our, you know, this is our temple. This is the place yeah. where we, you know, we practice something beautiful. I think, I, I, I don't know. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And that's fun. And when you got into the whole uh, haunted baseball thing, you know, it says you also uh, wrote it with your friend Mickey Brett. Well, I, he's your co-author. I, th- I don't know if he's your friend. Yeah, he is. Like, <laughs> co-worker. Co- yeah. Well, you know how co-workers can sometimes be like, oh, I love working with them. We, we provide great work. But sometimes I want to stab him in the throat. Well, there were times, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I- so how did, how did you guys get together to start working the project, you and Mickey? Yeah, we went to school together and um, in college. And um, he, at the time, I didn't know he was a, a huge fan, actually a Yankees fan, which kind of for Red Sox fans is kind of unusual. But he, um, it wasn't until after I did, did the Watson Fellowship and got back that, you know, um, we started, I, I realized how passionate a, a fan he was. And he, he was actually named, um, his dad named him after Mickey Mantle. Uh, so, so he oh. kind of had that. You know, um, he was born with the, you know, to, to inherit that uh, passion. Um, and, you know, just like with, with you know, with the Brewers and um, so many other, you know, he was, you know, uh, you know, Milwaukee in general. And cities with like just a deep passion for baseball, deep history. Um, they're just kind of that, you know, um, you know, so there was something in common there. But um, in general, we were just great friends. And um, I, I actually had the idea for uh, writing on baseball. And, and I just thought, you know, Mickey's a fantastic writer as well. And, and it, I knew once I kind of thought of, of the topic that it was just something that's way too. I just knew how much research would go into it and, you know, and, and, it, and that it would require more than just myself to be able to you know, come up with all the, you know, stories and information and in- interviews we had to do to um, put the book together. And when you were doing that research, okay, so you can't, I mean, you don't just sit there and like Google haunted baseball, because <laughs> if you Google haunted baseball, it's your book that comes up, right? So that's the, the first thing that comes up. So when you get into it and start doing the research, how did you guys uh, approach this, especially when you know, all of these teams and all these franchises have their market, you know, quote unquote marketing and PR to worry about. They may now associate with ghost stories. So how did you guys approach this when you were finding haunted baseball stories? 
We started at the Hall of Fame. I go there every year for a conference, um, you know, so and work with the librarians there and do research there. And so I kind of started calling things there. And, and, and there wasn't a lot, um, you know, as I kind of expected. I mean, there's the usual curse stories, maybe one or two stories. But um, and just realized that, you know, I, I started writing. We sent out surveys to all the players Um through the uh, PR department, and I was surprised how many teams were actually willing to um, at least say that they were going to hand them out to the players in the clubhouse. And I got like, I think one or two responses. I can't remember from whom, but then we just decided, well, we just have to, to like interview guys. And um, a couple of the PR guys actually gave us some leads. Um, I think that's how I came upon uh, the story in the Blue Jays. Um, to begin with, but um, the, in general, but we we just started uh, going, we went down, decided the best way to catch as many teams as possible at the beginning was to go to spring training. So it was kind of like an all or nothing. If this doesn't work, this probably isn't going to work. Is we got, you know, he, Mickey went to Arizona, I went to Florida. So you at least got out of the snow. You're like, if this, if this doesn't work <laughs> out, at least we got a little vacation out of it. Yeah, it was great. It was heaven. I mean, for a baseball fan, like spring training, getting to like talk to. And the cool thing about spring training is that all these Hall of Famers are hanging out. So you're not just talking to the current players, but like tons of like, you know, our past guys and great guys. I mean, you got Willie Mays in the Giants clubhouse. You got Al Kaline in, in Detroit. I mean, all these guys are like hanging out at spring training, helping out um, Bob Feller, the Indian. And so like you could, you know, it's, talk to get so many different perspectives and, and stories and and it, it was really cool and almost right away as soon as we went in like the first thing we heard over and over again was go talk to the yankees go talk to the yankees you know <laughs> and um and eventually some of the guys said you know yankee stadium's haunted you know and and the more and more i and that just became like a universal chorus you know um but we also heard like a lot of stories from like other, uh, uh, you know, players, you know, and a lot of players would just say, I don't have something, but I was on this team and these guys did. And, and you know, just it was, you know, so it was a lot of a lot of like running around uh, t- tag. And um, we basically spent like three years doing that, you know, um, not just spring training, but then we, you know, I Mickey, you know, he did a lot. Of, he was a consultant like he's in Chicago and like he'd go to the Cubs and whoever the away team, you know, you try to arrange our schedules around who was coming into town. Like he, um, sometimes at Yankee stadium or Che, or I'd go at, at Fenway, um, um, and catch teams coming in. Um, sometimes we knew guys that were just, you know, that now they were coaching in the minors or that, you know, um, sometimes you just have to kind of dig and really find out where the guys are now, which is pretty hard to do, but, um, got a few guys over the phone as well. So it, well, it's it sounds like just straight up in you know investigation going, to, and it's great that everybody was so forward with you and it's like, oh yeah, check out this guy, talk to this guy. He had some weird stuff, and I think we should probably start with you know whenever you talk about baseball, the first thing everybody thinks of, like you said, is curses. So for maybe the people who aren't familiar with a lot of the different curses, what do you think is the most famous curse in baseball history that we can bring them up to speed? <laughs> Well, there were two. The the you know the curse of the Billy Goat with the Cubs, um, which died last year. Um, you never know if it will be resurrected. Um, and you know the curse of the Bambino with the the Red Sox. Um, the curse of the Billy Goat was about this uh, 
in, the Cubs hadn't won a World Series since 1908, and they hadn't been to one in 1940 since 1945. They'd been like I think five times from 1908 to 45. And anyway, from in 1945, um, there was a tavern owner Billy Sienis who. Um, wanted to his nickname was Billy Goat and actually the tavern was called the Billy Goat Tavern and he wanted to to promote his business so he wanted to bring his his uh his goat to the ballpark uh during that I forget whether it was game 3 of of the of the series um and when he got to the stadium the 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 ushers were like I mean the, the ticket takers were like no you can't bring him in you know and and then he was just basically got into this huge argument and according to legend was he kind of showed the back of the ticket and said, there's nothing on this ticket that says I can't bring a live animal in. And somehow he won the argument, was able to bring him in. Um, but it was drizzling out, uh, the cub, the animal, the cub, the goat, I'm sorry, started to smell like, uh, uh, you know, a goat would smell and, and drizzle. And they <laughs> basically, you know, that, People were complaining, and the ushers had a, had a reason to kick him out. Um, right, a wet a wet goat is worse than a two fisted slobber. <laughs> you know, <laughs> true. You know, it was, it was pretty. It was much worse even for the for Cubs fans. <laughs> um, and it's amazing, like with curse stories in general, um, just how they take on a life of their own. I mean, some things are like. You know, nowadays it's even you know crazier with the internet because anybody can like make a suggestion on, and it catches fire, and then everyone starts talking about it. But like with the, with the Billy Goat, it it was kind of a Cubs fans started to believe it after a while. Um, you know, some players would even like make references to it. Um, one manager, I forget his name, but he kept like a statue of a goat on his on his desk. I mean, they brought. They brought the Sienis family in. The Sienis family at times like came in, wrote apologies. They brought in witches. They brought in all types of things to kind of, um, you know, people to try to uh, undo the curse. Um, they they had rituals. They, um, you know, some fan, there was some pretty grotesque stuff like fans severing a goat's head and leaving on the statue of Ernie Banks outside the ballpark. Oh, you know, man. I mean, hor- horrific oh, stuff. You know, they they and it just it goes on and on. You know, just kind of crazy stuff and um so i mean and same thing with the curse of bambino which was a curse where the red Sox um tra- sold um babe ruth in 1918 and um after the series winning the series and never uh didn't go to this didn't win a series or rather again into 1980 up uh, to, to i'm sorry 2004 um and and the thing with that curse is nobody i when i growing up nobody ever said curse of the bambino it you know, and this was in the 70s, the 1975 and 1986, they kind of both where they kind of, um, you could say, choked um, in, the, in game seven. Um, and, you know, 1946, they had as well. But a sports writer named Dan Shaughnessy just like made a kind of playful reference to it. And all of a sudden it became reality for everybody. And everybody started saying the curse of the curse of the of Bambino, you know, so. Um, so th- that curse actually came from that. That legend actually came from a sportscaster just talking about it. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. A sports writer talking about it, saying so he kind of made up the curse of the Bambino. <laughs> right, right. I mean, some could could argue that he he uh, he articulated. I don't know, but he, he definitely before that there we there are no references 
um, in the NCA tournament um, that just uh, finished uh, um, last month, they, they had the uh, um, Gonzaga and um, South Carolina with teams that had curses as well. The Gonzaga had a team called the Elite Eight Curse, but but the South Carolina and and the woman actually won their. their... You'll have to forgive me as a as, as maybe geography geographically challenged. Where is Gonzaga, and why does it sound like a made-up city? <laughs> you know, I've always wondered. I, I, I until I uh, recently, I didn't know they're in Spokane, Washington. Okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, they're they're kind of like this Cinderella team, but they never like were able to, you know, uh, get past the uh, the final eight in the NCAA tournament. But the the uh, South Carolina Gamecocks. That there was a sports writer who kind of came up with this. Uh, 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 back, I think a couple decades ago, started calling it that they had the curse of the chicken because they never won a national championship in any sport, and and it just kind of that kind of took off there, you know. So um, it, they kind of had this theory that the, a governor, um, I forget his name, but he he um, was mad because South Carolina had, didn't build an agricultural school; they built some a state school instead, and um, he kind of stuck it stuck his pitchfork in the in the soil and said you know that they're they're cursed so i mean it it th- these are odd stories but the th- the funny thing is just how they they kind of take on a life of their own well you know and the funny the did you get to go to the billy goat tavern did you ever you ever go there have a cheeseburger or a beer mickey did in fact you know mickey come, uh, actually ended up doing a book signing there but mickey did beforehand and they they, they you know the billy goat tavern of course you know, it's probably the biggest winner out of anyone with that curse. You know, I mean, yeah. Well, they also got made fun of on Saturday Night Live with the cheeseburger, cheeseburger. That whole sketch was <laughs> a, based on John Belushi and Bill Murray going to the Billy Goat as kids. <laughs> That's great. I didn't oh. know that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was funny. Like, I didn't even, we didn't even know about the curse of Billy Goat. We were kids. I remember my, my parents on a trip to Chicago took us down to the Billy Goat Tavern and this they're like this is where the cheeseburger cheeseburger skit comes from and then we all had a good laugh and the guys actually this is like 1981 1982 right so they'd say it along they'd be like you order a cheeseburger and then they go cheeseburger cheeseburger no coke pepsi and it was pretty fun <laughs> yeah yeah i love that that skit <laughs> so those are the you know probably the most famous curses that are now obviously broken so i guess the the 21st century uh is the curse breaker for most baseballs so when we comes to you say that Yankee Stadium you mentioned was haunted. Let's start with maybe the the ghosts of Yankee Stadium and maybe a couple other stadiums that you think have the most interesting stories. And you know, it's hard to think of cuz sta- all stadiums now, I mean, have the name, you know, it's got to be 3Com. I don't even know if 3Com Stadium still exists. But I, I know cuz I know the 3Com doesn't exist anymore, but it's it's AT&T Field or it's, you know, McDonald's Park or whatever it's going to be. It, and it all feels everything's so corporate now and you think in the age of corporate stadiums, those haunted legends just, you know, they they don't exist anymore. So let, what's the story behind Yankee Stadium and you figure that's got to be the place with the most history uh in in baseball world? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I, every year, it's hard to tr- keep track of the ballparks, and I may actually misname one when I'm talking about. Like uh, the thing is, with in players' minds, especially, but also just the, the, either local fans or the or the the workers in those ballparks, they, they you know they those stories do you know they're very real. And like so, for Yankee Stadium, 
the the idea is the old stadium. Now they actually have the new Yankee Stadium uh, across, which is across the street. Um, it's the idea that the ghosts uh, of old time players like uh, um, you know Joe DiMaggio and uh, Babe Ruth and um, tons of other players that they're they're still at the ballpark and they kind of influence what happens on the field. That they help the Yankees to win games in late innings. Um, and many players would describe how, like, in late innings sometimes at Yankee Stadium, um, the old Dan, the new, um, the wind suddenly picks up and all of a sudden something happens in favor of the Yankees. A, a ball will drop in. Um, a Torrey Hunter um, with the Minnesota Twins, like, said, people say when you go to Yankee Stadium, just have the feeling that you're going to lose. Like, the ghosts are whispering in your ear. The whole time that you're walking into the clubhouse in the dugout on the field. I mean, it's kind of, wow. they got this, you know, thing at Yankee Stadium where, they, you know, and it's really cool. They have the uh, monuments, which are just kind of like the monuments. Of, you know, they're like great. Some players describe it as the graveyard because it looks like the players are buried there. But, you know, that it's just kind of like these monuments that, you know, that out in the, in the, that, are visible to all all the players visit them. Some players like actually love you know for ritual reasons. Like Roger Clemens used to always want to touch the monuments before he pitched, um, and you know so there's just like this huge awareness of, of of the history there. And you know the Yankees had a winning tradition, and so kind of that is really cool and it's so unique to that stadium. You know, yeah, yeah, a special kind of home field advantage. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, um. I just don't think that's fair to the other. Like, if you like, it's one thing. Well, it's one thing. The field, you know, you have the people on the roster or whatever, and then you have the extra people jumping at balls. Like, I don't, I, I don't think that's very sportsmanlike conduct. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and and these players, like totally sane players, players like some of the most you know respected players in the game would, um, like all believed it. I mean, like John Smoltz, like told me, like during the. The World Series when he was with the, pitching for the Atlanta Braves, they said like uh, it wasn't Derek Jeter at bat. He said when I was facing him, it was somebody else. You know, and, and you know, um, guys like would say, you know, like when I go there, I'm kind of nervous. I'm scared that the ghosts will come out. Uh, um, Derek Jeter, you know, one of the most famous players ever in you know modern times of the Yankees. Um, you know, said like I, I, you know, they're there. You know, they come out. You know, it's. You know, we interviewed them because it was a famous thing that came out during a 2003 uh, American League Championship Series against the Red Sox where he told, you know, they were in the clubhouse in a close game, nail-biter in this Game 7, and Jeter said to Aaron Boone, like, the ghost, you know, Judas, Jeter's like, how can, Aaron Boone was like, how can you be so calm right now? And Jeter said, you know, don't worry, the ghost will come. And, you know, then Boone ended up hitting the, in the, I think the 11th, um, the game winning uh, walk off home run. And, you know, so that, that ended up coming up in like an after game and post game interview. And, you know, so then that really took off. But, you know, I, in talking to them afterwards, they said, yeah, that happened. And, you know, yeah, we, we believe it, you know, and it just, Amazing how many players do believe that, you know. Um, yeah, don't worry, the ghosts will come. Like, you yeah. know, we, we could be practicing here, but the ghosts will take care of it. But I'm curious, because, you know, you don't think of a stadium as a, a spooky place, like a lot of the other haunted places that we've discussed and visited and that type of thing, because it's such a huge open space. And I know a lot of theaters are like that, too. But I'm curious, you know, if there have been any, especially maybe at Yankee Stadium, if you've heard of any actual ghostly sightings 
I mean, I would think it would be likelier in the building, like in the locker rooms or somewhere like that. But um, if there's been any reports or any particularly cool or interesting things of that nature. The funny thing is that, like, there haven't been a lot of, of like, reports of that, like, compared to other ballparks, you know, but much more oh. players believing that. But but there were, you know, been a few, like, guys saying that, like, um, like Mike Gallego is a player who said, like, he always, like, felt like someone was like right behind him and as he was coming up the uh, the ramp into onto the field um but um manager of the orioles and um said i forget his name but he was managing the yankees and um said that he he actually believed that i mean he used to sleep at the ballpark if he had a night game and a day game the following day he'd sleep like on the training bench or something and he would hear things late at night and he he said to us, I always thought that it was, you know, the babe coming in late at Babe Ruth coming in late at night after a, a night out in the town. So <laughs> that's cool. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> but not a lot, you know, compared to like Dodger Stadium, like, you know, where we're in uh, Wrigley Field um, um, and a, uh, a few other ballparks of players have actually, you know, or, or workers have said they've seen apparitions and, and stuff or things in the corridors. Um, well, Wrigley Field was a place when I think about like they, they they didn't even have lights until the '90s, right? Like they had it was right. all like Wrigley Field was a place with real grass and and no lights and everything. And I remember it was a big controversy when they were going to bring you know they were going to modernize this field. That's probably practicing at night is probably why they eventually uh, <laughs> defeated the curse of the Billy Goat. <laughs> but as far as like apparitions that people have seen at stadiums, is there anything in particular that strikes you as either the most credible or either the most credible or incredible story that you're like, I can't, you know, that, that one is crazy. I can't believe it. <laughs> um, the, there are stories, uh, uh, one, one player, I forget his name, said that um, like sometimes balls would get hit into the ivy and then they could never find them. Um, that that's just kind of really weird. But I mean, the, the the most incredible stories would come from like security guards, uh, you know, folks working like late at night in the ballpark. And you know, w- we talked to dozens that like all had stories like um, seeing apparitions. Um, or um, one of the most popular stories is that. Um, security guards that would always hear the bullpen phone ringing the the phone connecting from the dugout to the bullpen like calling for a relief pitcher and they 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 always thought it was charlie Grimm, the manager uh former manager of the cubs um someone claimed to have seen Grimm's apparition as well um and yeah they always thought it was him like calling for a relief pitcher or something like that um they've been like uh Um, paranormal crews have come in there. Um, Ursula Bielski has done a lot on, on uh, you know, Illinois and Chicago hauntings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we know Ursula. We go to her ghost conference. She got called in 1998. I mean, it's part of the whole, you know, paranormal lore of the Cubs. You know, the Cubs were winning that season. And it was right, um, you know, um, they, they were wondering, like, you know, like, why, why are we winning? Um, they brought brought her in, and they, they, she went to various places throughout the ballpark, you know, and uh, found nothing, like, uh, in the press booth um, and on the field. Um, and basically, when they went into the outfield um, bleachers, that they, they got like a, a lot of uh, like cold spots. Um, 
and thought that something was going on. So they thought that it was right after Harry Carrier died, the you know the the famous uh, Cubs announcer. Cubs win. Yeah, um, you know, so they, the the Cubs actually thought like maybe he was like, you know, helping the Cubs to win or something like that. But um, you know, but it, it kind of made sense. Uh, uh, you know, afterwards, uh, you know, Ursula told us because she thought like that. You know, uh, in terms of like passion where would the most passion be in a ballpark beside you know in in the bleachers you know with the where the diehards are you know come you know night after night to the ballpark i wonder what makes it a bunch like we have we've been talking about chicago a bunch and i I wonder what makes that place particularly superstitious (laughs) you know like yeah you know yankee you understand because it's been around for so long and like they have so many championships i mean geez louis like you know they're I mean, they've obviously won the most World Series out of anybody, and so there's so much history in New York. So ba- I mean, I guess Chicago's huge too. But the fact yeah, they that have two baseball teams—that's true. They got two baseball teams, and uh, everybody forgets about the White Sox. Do the White Sox have any stories you've heard or anything like that? Or I mean, Comiskey Park, at least a new one, uh, seems too nice and too new uh, to have any stories. But the old Comiskey Park or anything like that—have you heard anything about Chicago's forgotten team, the poor Sox? <laughs> we did a whole a chapter just on the White Sox because they had a long drought too. I forget how many years, but you know, but they never had a, a, a curse a story behind it. But uh, we interviewed a, a guy named uh, a gentleman named Dr. David Fletcher. Um, you know, Chicago White Sox were probably most famous in history and lore for the Chicago Black Sox, um, who uh, in 1918, I believe, um, um, were were uh you know found um you know to have uh fixed the games um uh, you know uh were, were found guilty of, of fixing games which actually was actually quite common at the time but they were kind of like became the scapegoat uh, so to speak um and they basically got um uh you know was it shoeless joe jackson you know it became kind of the basis of the movie uh field of dreams um but like shoeless joe jackson was kicked out a bunch of players were banned and one of those players buck weaver um was not part of the uh you know thought later on not to have been part of it just because he batted like in the 300s during the series and you know he kind of kept saying i i i wasn't part of the fixing of this of the series and um so dr david fletcher like was a huge white Sox fan and all of it one day he says he he encountered buck weaver had kind of sort of an apparition of him weaver kind of said you know free my name or or um, you know, and basically he spent, um, he spent his lifetime kind of trying to, you know, get, you know, reinstate, you know, Weaver from the band list, uh, um, you know, Weaver's long gone, of course. Um, and it, it, it's kind of been his passion and he's had a, a few other encounters there as well with Weaver and some of the folks that work with him as well. That's interesting that he, he that, uh, first of all, Buck Weaver is a sweet name. Like he should be like the star of an action movie or something like that. But second of all, the fact that the idea that you had to rehabilitate his name, that he, you know, you know, he he came to Doctor Fletcher to re, you know, avenge me, you know, kind of thing. And I feel that's almost what. Uh, Do you ever see that movie Sixty One that Billy Crystal directed? About uh, like that that he was trying to rehabilitate Roger Maris, right, right, yeah, because uh, everybody was mad at him for breaking Babe Ruth's record. And I feel like that's a very you know, baseball thing that um, people that may have not been respected as they deserve when their career ended or something, people afterwards coming back to try to rehabilitate, clear 
you know, clear the name. I mean, even even Pete Rose trying to find ways to get into the Hall of Fame, you know, years after he kind of sullied his reputation for gambling against his own team. Yeah, I think the cool thing about baseball and kind of that makes, you know, l- lends itself and makes the paranormal so fascinating, the, the ghost stories, is just the fact that people are so aware of the history, like more than any other sport, like people in baseball. I mean, ballparks are, you know, a belt you know, nowadays, especially to replicate older ballparks. There's like so much honoring of the past, you know, Babe Ruth, who's been dead since um, the 19, I guess, early, early fifties, I think um, is still, you know, people can still picture him and, and, you know, um, they know about him, like almost as if he's still alive, you know, it's kind of cool the way people honor the past and think about it. And, you know, I remember talking to players, I remember players talking about Tiger stadium, which is another, haunted hotspot but a type people players saying like i i remember like being so fascinated like being like i i just love being in there because i i just thought like i'm walking on the same field as al kaline and as uh, all these guys and i'm using the same urinal that babe ruth probably used and all this kind of cool stuff (laughs) you know um so it's really cool that is well speaking of uh players living forever what about ted williams like is he really it like he frozen in carbonite like that have you heard anything about that <laughs> he is actually um but i haven't heard any stories i've kind of asked around a lot but um nothing i mean people in fenway parks work some workers there believe that the ballpark is haunted and talk about hearing like the crack of the bat late at night or, or some a couple of workers talked about hearing like screams coming from the green monster um Good screams, right? Like not like somebody getting like screams of like, "All right, we won." Not like screams Go like team. somebody's somebody's getting knifed. Oh, they said like shrieking. Uh, but oh, well, great. Yeah. Wait. So sorry, I, I'm not familiar with the Ted Williams thing. For for those of us that aren't in the know, what are you talking about? Uh, Ted Williams, uh, his family after he died, there was kind of a, a spat where, and one of his sons uh, felt like that Ted Williams had requested before he died that he wanted to be frozen and have his head frozen. So like if oh. that were the technology someday to, um, you know, bring him back to life. I see. Okay. So he was a forward looking <laughs> kind of <Yeah>. guy. <laughs> I always thought that story was awesome. Cause that's what I want people to do to me. Like I want to be frozen. <laughs> I'm coming back, baby. Like, even if it's just my head in a jar, like Futurama style, that's okay with me. Like I'm, I'm okay with hanging out in the future, like as Mike's head or whatever. Like if that's if anybody wants me around. Okay. But I go ahead, Wen. Oh, I have a question because I'm not as familiar with the sports world, but there have been a lot of stories and articles that I've read about a place that's near and dear to us in Milwaukee, the Fister Hotel. Yeah. um, Which apparently many, many baseball and other uh, sports figures have denounced, refused to stay there because they've had such scary uh, haunting experiences. And I was wondering if you heard anything about that or maybe other stories of overnight accommodations where players experienced strange things. Yeah, tons. Yeah. I mean, that's the other. uh, (laughs) I'm really glad you asked that because like uh, the Fister is, of course, you know, legendary um, in baseball circles. um, Another hotel is the Vinoy Hotel, uh, a little bit the Western St. Francis. And there are some minor league places that are kind of like out of this, you know, un- unbelievable stories. Um, and the the Fister, uh, you know, just players, are ter- some players, a lot of players are terrified to stay there. Um, some won't stay there. Um, you know, they'll just refuse. But like guys 
telling me stories like, um, you know, um, Billy Wagner, a relief pitcher, a longtime relief pitcher, told me that, you know, he, he was kind of fascinated. He actually wanted to stay in the, what, he, what he called, quote unquote, the haunted part of the room hotel oh, wow. and, and he even requested and he said he got his money's worth like during the night he heard the ghost of an old bellman making its way down the hall you know, he, he he actually like peeked out and saw saw something like that and he also heard footsteps and the sound of his door opening his lights were flickering um i guys um you know guys like saying like that they they were so terrified at night that i mean that Guys saying that they 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 heard footsteps in night. Some guys actually like covered their she- sheets over their eyes. Um, uh, I mean, put you know put the sh- sheets over their head. And, like some guys saying I, they got no sleep at all. Like you know, it's such a common wow. common thing. Uh, I think it's a ghost of Harvey Keen coming in, waking them so they don't you know so they get no sleep when they play the Brewers the next day. Yeah, well, the home field he's, advantage, you know, yeah. spitting tobacco on them from beyond the grave. <laughs> well, you have to figure if if those athletes. For them to admit and to say, you know, I was so terrified that I refused to stay there again. I got to say, there must have been something pretty scary <laughs> going on. It's fascinating um, because, like, some of these guys are like these huge towering guys. I mean, they're going into the baddest box, um, you know, facing 98 mile per hour fastballs, like some coming in towards their head. I mean, I'd be scared out of my mind, you know, facing some of the pitchers and, and, and you know, um, but... You know, they're, they're terrified. I'm, I'm scared out of my mind when I get a sports and leisure question in Trivial Pursuit. So I can't imagine actually getting a 98-mile-an-hour baseball thrown at me. <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing is, like, that that it, there's a lot of buildup going into these places. And some of it – so, I mean, some of this is – in my mind, some of it's definitely the players' imaginations running wild, too, because – you know, they're going into these old hotels and like some players like have said, like you walk into the Fister and you see the sculptures there and stuff like that. And it's almost like there's it's got this paranormal element to it, all these, you know, things that, you know, um, and like yeah, some definitely. Yeah. And, you know, they hear the pounding of the wall, which might be like the pipes, you know, pounding or, or might not. But, you know, there there so many players have, have talked about stuff, but they they even like do like pranks on each other where the. Uh, Older players, you know, players will try to, to terrify one another and like oh, actually man. set up the rooms and put fishing line on lamps and like in the middle of the night from outside the door, oh. pull <laughs> lamp off. That's just cruel. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it, it's, you know, that that's part of the culture, too. But the, then like some of the guys who had experiences, you know, who doing the pranks, like I'd interview them, like the Western St. Francis, Ellis Burks of longtime veteran um when he was teammates with cc sabathia or the yank went back when sabathia was um what well, i i can't remember the team name i'm sorry but they they where he would like basically um you know they were terrifying him and like telling stories about a haunted elevator and then um you know and coco crisp and like they went up the elevator and the elevator started to to sputter a little bit and they were like totally terrified and and then like you know so i'm asking uh Burke's about it. He goes, yeah, again, I mean, I did that. But then he says, but but it's real. It happened to me. And then he started talking about seeing an apparition in in the room, like uh, of, uh, you know, um, he had, they had this player suite and seeing like someone, you know, uh, walking across in the, from the in the other room. So like it, it there there it's kind of, you know, it's just a huge amount of buildup. And so was that the, with the, would you just tell that story? Was that the Vinoy where they were doing the elevator stuff? 
No, no, that was the Western St. Francis, which is in uh, San oh, Francisco. Right. I'm sorry. Uh, that's where players stayed when they played the San Francisco Giants. Um, um, and but you know, the Vinoy is is another you know, in Tampa, Tampa, St. P- St. Petersburg. That's another place that's totally uh, totally wild. With st- you know. <laughs> Sure. Well, I think the thing about we we talk about baseball players joking with each other, and I I have to do a plug real quick uh, for uh, Allison Jornlin from Milwaukee Ghost for the, for her ghost tour MilwaukeeGhost.com. You can check it out because she goes in depth about the Fister. So if you guys are visiting Milwaukee, yes. um, so it's cool that uh, Dan. Now you got the players side of it, and so on her tour she gets the people that work there. Because the hotel people will not give you anything on yeah. ghost stories or anything. They say they're haunted by the spirit of hospitality, <laughs> which is like, yeah, it's really funny, guys. Nobody. It's a nice it. way to brush it off quickly, <laughs> right? So, but she interviewed like the like the uh, like the people that work at the restaurant there and stuff like that. For, so, to get both perspectives, make sure you read Dan's book about it, and also make sure you take that tour. So, we would be remiss not to plug it. Also, though, but baseball players messing with their pranks, you know, baseball players. That seems, out of all the sports, to be the most superstitious. Now, you were talking about Roger Clemens having, like, going out and uh, almost paying fealty to the monuments, you know, before he went and pitched a game. Of the superstitions of baseball, what are some, either the most famous ones or, or interesting ones that you found in your research, you know, beyond the everybody turn their hats around for rally caps? Like, what, <laughs> what is the stuff that you've kind of found when it comes to baseball players and their superstitions? Funny thing is every year new ones come up. So, like, last year the Cubs on the pitcher John Lester, who was actually broke, uh, you know, was with the Red Sox prior to that. So he'd been on two teams with kind of a history of, of, of you know, curses but like he actually he had, he's a huge avid hunter and he went out with his dad um during the off season and they found some antlers and he decided to like keep it in his locker room as a memento and and then they, they he stopped the, the cubs started winning and he decided like at home he decided I, I think i'll take it with me on the road and he basically took it with him out without the season and then like so like somebody asked him about it and like oftentimes play is kind of like it's kind of funny with baseball. Like some players say it's superstition. Some would just say it's ritual. Like I just do it because I do it and I win. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a blurry distinction. But like he, the, but then he like referenced like other teams that that do stuff like that. And he mentioned the Royals, Kansas City Royals last year, who ha, you know captured a praying mantis uh, and decided to keep the, carry that around with them. Um, and he mentioned that. Uh, Anaheim Angels, who like carried a, a a rally monkey that they had in the clubhouse, which is a, a stuffed animal. Okay, it wasn't a real monkey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but there have been live animals too. I mean, there's been stuffed animals like the Red Sox um, in 2007, I believe. They had a stuffed parrot, and and it was kind of like they kept it in the, in the in the bullpen, and you know it was kind of a religious thing. And at some point, like during the celebration when they went. Won the divi- when they won the division, the, the parrot went missing um, during the, somehow during the celebration. And like Mon- Mike Tim- Timlin of the Red Sox, this really articulate, rational, reasonable guy, like got on like uh, on on the on local TV and just said like, you know, we know this is just a stuffed parrot, but we really need this parrot. We really need this parrot. <laughs> and, and like you know, uh, you know, oh, it, it's so important. Wanted. We need and and you know somehow it turned up in like some Boston University students of you know freezer you know stole. That's you amazing. Know. But like uh, 
that there's like funnier things like uh, you know garden players having garden trouble. Do you, but like an old time player with the Orioles told me like back in the seventies that they that uh, when he was leaving the ballpark one time someone like handed him like a box with a, a shoe box and he kind of as he was going out he looked into it and there was like a a baby turkey inside the shoebox and they decided to like let it as a joke to kind of let it run around and the Orioles went on this tear and they 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 won you know like I like 18 out of 20 games something like that and they just like kept it and the turkey kept growing and they just had it uh, running around the clubhouse and the the clubhouse guy was feeding it so there's there's hilarious stuff like that and then players of course had their own individual stuff and probably the funniest thing i heard was uh jason giambi used to wear like a he a a thong like a golden thong um because he (laughs) thought that that would always help him break break out of a slump and then like is one day like johnny damon his teammate was kind of like in the slump and he suggested he borrow it and he borrowed it and then like other players were borrowing it a bernie williams robert return jeter even borrowed it and like (laughs) became this community team thing and you know oh um, my goodness i just hope they had good laundry detergent i mean yeah exactly i was gonna say i mean (laughs) the idea of wearing like a i mean this isn't just a regular dude's butt floss like this is actual like these are baseball players wearing it during games right yeah yeah so, I mean, yeah and they admitted it too so that's kind of the, yeah. the funniest wow. thing yeah. yeah like that's the kind of thing like where you like where you if you prank somebody you like leave it in their locker or something you don't just share it so that's great um and and those kind of superstitions are, are really interesting as is now, going back to, uh, you know, reading a little bit about your books here, I'm interested in the catacombs of Dodger Stadium. Ooh. So is that in the, from the Brooklyn Dodger Stadium or is that in Los Angeles where they have hidden passageways? Uh, and why would they have hidden passageways? Like for Tommy Lasorda to, to escape or what's the deal? <laughs> well, Dodger Stadium is probably like, of all the ballparks I visited, was the coolest. I mean, just like... Yeah, it was in Los Angeles, uh, the, the Dodgers, uh, the Dodger Stadium. I mean, it was built um, on top of, uh, you know, when Brooklyn kind of left, they were looking for a spot and they found this place called Chavez Ravine. I um, mean, they basically evicted like a whole bunch of people. And there's like a lot of photos and stuff and like video of like of people literally being dragged out of their houses for, you know, you know, people refusing to leave and stuff like that. So it was a lot of passion, but it was built on top of like a hill and kind of like, tunneling down in, into the the hill itself um you know it's kind of a cool place that overlooks all of la it's a really awesome place um and there's lots of tunnels underneath the ballpark and they have like places where they keep the old brooklyn dodgers memorabilia there's stuff like there the the o'malley family you know owned the dodgers for forever um they they you know um they kept a, a lot of like old stuff and workers down there would report like uh you know like you know, hearing voices of, of things moving around, um, you know, coming in, you know, uh, you know, being the only one with a key and the coming back and everything's moved around and like thrown on the floor and stuff like that. Or about definitely hearing voices and lights flickering and, and footsteps. I mean, um, work in Dodger Stadium has like so many other stories, like security guards, um, you know, um, seeing, you know, seeing apparitions and uh, workers there like, uh, uh, you know, long time workers in the stands like late at night when they're doing that, the vendors in particular counting their their um, 
um, their inventory, um, like seeing like apparitions on the field. Um, and the cool thing is, is like, I mean, the, the airy thing about ballparks, and I did a lot of interviews, um, Mickey and I both, like in the ballparks, is like, after the game lets out, the workers are still there, like into like three, four in the morning, some later, depends on, and, you know, the clubbies are the probably are always there very late, the guys that take care of the clubhouse and the players. But even the guys that are, like, taking care of the stands or the inventory people, they're there, and they basically shut off the lights. I mean, they're just kind of like a the lights might be glowing a little bit, so they're basically working in the dark in the glow of the city. So, like, they're, they're, you know, it's kind of a pretty eerie place to begin with. Um, you know, security guards working in there, just going walking around, flashlights, um, you know, in, in, in the dark. Um, well, they're the people to talk to, right, then? Because they're the ones who are there when there's not, a, you know, 80,000 people screaming. Exactly. Well, I mean, they are there, but they're also there when, it's, when it's empty. And, and there is something to a, an empty field or an empty arena or an empty auditorium that it just, it's almost spooky in the fact that there's, there people should be there and there's nobody there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it's cool. I mean, in these places are just embedded with memories, you know, I mean, to begin with, a lot of the people that work there are, are huge fans. So like, you know, like, they just have this association and this memory and, and, and so forth. But, but they, there's also just like, uh, um, they're just eerie places. Um, so like, I mean, one worker was telling me how like, he would hear like footsteps behind him and one like bit, one time, like uh, what he thought was a child giggling, you know, following him, and um, as he's w- walking th- through the, you know, walking from one station to the next, um, things like that. Um, a lot of, um, you know, apparitions and, and such, but like like noise, a lot of a lot of eerie noises as well. And the cool thing, the thing about Dodger Stadium as well is kind of like it has this. Um, a Native American lore and kind of the rumor that, you know, Dodgers underneath Dodger Stadium was, and that's kind of what referring to the catacombs as well, were with these set of tunnels that kind of, they ended like right near uh, where City Hall is in, in LA, um, but like they go, there's a series of tunnels where um, old, you know, ancient Native Americans, I forget the name of the tribe, um, um, that, that would, you know, that lived under there and kind of tunneled and stuff like that so kind of there's a little bit of awareness of that but there's also just kind of awareness of the uh you know the mexican-american history and chavez ravine um and players actually the workers there like late at night they would actually party um at a cemetery that was near that uh, an abandoned cemetery there's a tomb um where they love to to hang out and, and party like uh, after after everything was said and done. So there's kind of this awareness and like some workers actually like claim that they saw like, you know, you know, a lady in white, you know, which is the old ancient kind of like legend of, of upper lady in white, which in, in Mexico was kind of a huge thing, like a woman looking for her lost children. And um, they, they would see her like on the edge of the cliffs, right? where at Dodger stadium. And um, like some one worker said, like they actually saw her like jump off the cliff um, and, things like that. And it's just kind of like really bizarre stories you heard from there. I love it. So one more question for you, Dan, and uh, we got to thank you again for coming to the show. It's always great. And it's exciting this time of year, obviously talking about baseball on the week of opening day. 
But so baseball fans, like you were saying, like you were excited to go to spring training in all these places. And we know a lot of baseball fans that end up, they go to spring training. They will go to try to hit as many different ballparks in the U.S. as they can and see as, as many different places and see their favorite teams play in those places. So if you were a baseball fan that was also a weirdo like us, what are the top three parks that you would say you need to visit as a haunted baseball aficionado? Uh, definitely Dodger Stadium. Uh Wrigley, but also Anaheim Stadium, which um, has a, a ton of um, lore as well and ghost stories as well. So, I mean, it's kind of, you wouldn't think so because it's not that old of a ballpark. But, right. Um, but like, um, they, they believe that uh, workers there and players, like they all believe that the ballpark's built over a Native American cemetery. Several, you know, there were several ballparks they believe that in. But, so that, that would be a third. Um, I'd say there's also like, a, quite a few in the minor leagues rochester and in, in in new york um would definitely be a great place to hit up uh, um and yeah and who's the team that rochester is, is building for what's their like where are they what are they a farm team for oh they're, they're uh minnesota twins uh, right now they were the orioles before but um, oh, okay. So that's good for the so our, for our friends in Minnesota. We know we have some twins fans, and and I've seen games uh, at Target Field up there, which is obviously a beautiful new you know place. Yeah. Um, and it's only haunted by the spirit that the Brewers should be playing there is in the American ha, League. Ha 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 ha. Wait, I have one quick follow up question. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, since you've probably been to more stadiums than anyone I've ever met, I just have <laughs> to ask, what's your favorite stadium food that you got to have? <laughs> In the U.S. or or anywhere, <laughs> I I just love the 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 udon and noodles in in Japan. At uh, oh, um, interesting. Yeah, and do they have guys walking up and down in the stands selling those too? They do, but I mean it's kind of cool. Like some of the uh, people that sell them are like these really, uh, you know, old, you know, kind of crossy, very social, very friendly woman, old old woman, and you it's just like part <laughs> of the experience cool. of just buying it and like chatting it up with them. Um, as well but really like cool. yeah yeah but there's kind of like yeah <laughs> interesting i wouldn't have guessed that right so that's a, that's a great think, answer you think it'd be like the, the great american hot dog no it's the great japanese noodles <laughs> dan's a fan of so right. okay so you got two books you and mickey have two books based on this one is haunted baseball and the other is field of screams and if people are interested in picking up those books to learn more about haunted baseball where could they do that um, they're, they're, they're in bookstores on, on, or online. Um, yeah, pretty much everywhere. They're, um, if the store doesn't have it, just uh, ask for it. They can order it. We'll have links to Amazon uh, on our show notes, and that's going to be othersidepodcast.com slash 139 is where you can find those show notes. And then you can also we'll have LinkedIn. You can learn more about Dan Gordon and all the awesome things he does in baseball and the paranormal. Uh, I got to say, thank you very much for joining us today, Dan. It's been a thank pleasure you, Dan. talking about baseball with you and all of the ghost stories associated with it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And you can find out more about Dan at hauntedbaseball.com. Well, I certainly enjoyed talking to Dan, even though he was a Red Sox fan. <laughs> yeah, me too. No, that was very interesting. And I never thought I could have so much fun talking about sports. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> but, it is. Uh, he's definitely got the, the background and the history there to, to add mm-hmm. that fun folklore and paranormal history that we so love here at See You on the Other Side. <laughs> well, wh- now, Wendy, we can't say that you're not a sports fan because you did play on the Packers tundra line, like at Lambeau Field, rooting oh, yeah. on the Packers. So you are kind of a cheerleader. But let's not forget, 
in Wisconsin, being a Packers fan is just goes without saying. It has nothing to do with sports. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I, I thought that was a given. I'd... Yeah. But no, I, I mean, he was really so much knowledge about baseball and haunted stories. And uh, I really enjoyed it. We'll have him back um, next time we got a big baseball story that we need some commentary from the paranormal perspective. Yeah. And it was neat to hear, you know, he actually talked to the players who experienced these things. So after having read so many stories about, as mm-hmm. we brought up the Fister, um, it was just neat to talk to someone who actually got those stories firsthand from the players. Right. Because when you actually interview somebody, that's when you can kind of make the decision of like, is this guy bonkers or what? And, <laughs> right. And so that, that's part of the fun. Well, you know, it's funny because we did write a sports song beyond the Go Pack song. I know. I can't believe it, but we did. We did write a sports song. And this is back when we were trying, we were working on some music licensing stuff. <laughs> um, and they were saying that the, this sports channel needed a soundtrack. So we're like, all right, let's write a sports song. And it pretty much covers the most important things that a sports song should say. And that is go, go fight, win. win. All right. This song is called All In.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. You know who we can't forget? Oh, we never forget. We never forget our wonderful Patreon communities. Every single person uh, that helps support the See You on the Other Side podcast and do Sunspot songs every week, uh, you are our favorite people. And we are going to be doing another haunted hangout on Google with everybody. And that's going to be on Thursday, 420. So uh, 420, obviously, I guess, smoke them if you got them. Uh, (laughs) And and come to the uh, See You on the Other Side haunted Patreon hangout on 420. And you can find more information on that. Where, Wendy? At othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And if you're a Patreon like our friend Dr. Ned. Ned! Uh, if you're a Patreon like our friend Dr. Ned, then you could be mentioned and thanked in every single episode. Yes, as thank you, Ned. One of our great Patreon sponsors. So thanks, Ned, and we'll see you guys on the other side. and just just this old gross